From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Andy. Hello, Marion. Hello, hello. We are back again looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out between the 25th of December and the 31st of December 1944. Yes, and the men of the 52nd Lowland Division would have access to this newsletter almost every day, depending on where they were and what they were doing, of course. We're going to look at the articles that catch our eye for various reasons and just try and work out what was going on, why the editor included them, that sort of thing. Uh, so what else is happening this week, Mary? Uh, in this week in 1944, King George II of Greece declared a regency, leaving his throne vacant. The Agana race riots took place in Guam, which was a result of internal disputes between white and black United States Marines. And Morris James Christopher Cole was born on the 25th of December. He took the stage name Kenny Everett in honour of Edward Everett Horton, who voiced Rocky and Bullwinkle, who was also an actor who starred in films such as Arsenic and Lace, written by Joseph Kesselring, not to be confused with Albert Kesselring, the only one of the early field marshals not to be sacked by Hitler. Do you like what I did there? I, that was amazing how you did that. Yes, well done. That was good, isn't it? <laughs> it's like some kind of Kevin Bacon challenge, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. All right, shall we jump straight in and find out where the jocks are? Tell us what's going on, what the 52nd Lowland Division has been up to over the last seven days. Well, I mean, they're still in the same location as they have been. So yeah. they're Again, they're, they're there. Well, they're, they're going to be there for a little while. However, things do start to hot up after Christmas. In fact, on the 28th of December, there's a large battalion size attack on 5th Battalion King's Own Scottish Borders position near mm. Vintelin. In fact, it's quite an aggressive attack, and they start to push the King's Own Scottish Borders back. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they actually take most of the village of Vintelin um, and they take it overnight. But when they get into the village, they're quite happy about this because they haven't really been doing anything for a long while. And it seems like they've been on the cognac. So they can hear them drinking and celebrating. And while this is going on, the 5th Battalion's licking its wounds and then it mounts a counterattack the following morning and pretty much recaptures everything. There's a few casualties as well, but um, generally speaking, it goes very well successfully and the Germans have pushed back. Um, it's kind of a probing attack. I think it was just a, nothing too serious. But then um, two days later, on the 30th of December, there's a much more significant attack. It's a, a Kampfgruppe, so it's got uh, a battalion plus of German infantry from the 183rd Infantry Division and some attached um, self-propelled guns. Uh, and they attack the German village of Tripsrat. Now, G the German village of Tripsrat is just north of Geilenkirchen. Uh, and it was held by the 52nd from the middle of December all the way through to the uh, pretty much uh, the middle of January. Um, and the, the village of Tripsrath itself sits on the main rail and road route between Geilenkirchen, which is held by the Allies, and um, Heinsberg, uh, which is about 10 miles to the north, which is in the German territory. And it also sits on the western edge of the Siegfried Line. 
Uh, and there's a the sort of avenue of approach. If you want to get to Gallenkirk and you come straight down these roads, and that's exactly what the Germans did. And it's incredibly intense fighting. The the Glasgow Highlanders are the battalion that are defending the first battalion uh, of Glasgow Highlanders. And they're in a wood called Dorset Wood, which is to the west of Tripsrat. That wood is eventually captured by the Germans after really tough fighting. And the, the Germans actually break into the village of Tripsrat and pretty much take it all. Um Again, they take some time to lick their wounds, the 1st Battalion, and with the support of the 8th Armoured Brigade, who are the, the brigade supporting 52nd Lowland Division, uh, specifically the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. Some of you may have heard that before, which is, of course, the, the tank regiment that um, was written about in James Holland's book, Brothers in Arms. They provide uh, a squadron of tanks, and within a day or two, the, uh, they recapture the town of Tripsrat, recapture Dorset Wood and push the Germans back. So it's quite a busy week for the 52nd, and that brings them up to Hogmanay. So it's just as I think that might have been the incentive to get it done. So, so by Hogmanay on the 31st of uh, December, the, the the Germans are beaten beaten back, and and the 52nd is back in their positions. So in the last seven weeks, we've gone from Bergen up Zoom, yeah. um, all the way across, and it, it, it's felt like the last couple of weeks have been, eh, we're not making much progress, we're still in the same position. But it suddenly sounds like there's a little bit more detail and a lot more going on. Yes, there is. Um, I mean, this is sort of ramping up, and, and it's it's tied in with, it's the feeling is it's tied in with the, the Battle of the Bulge, which is going on to the south. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned before, um, and I foreshadowed this, it is the join between the, the British and the American armies. And normally at that sort of strategic and operational level, you try and exploit that gap. It didn't work and it wasn't really done in enough force, but it's it's aiming to try and put pressure on that position so the, the Americans start to, um, hopefully the Americans start to try and reinforce that and pull vital troops out of the of the, uh, of the bulge, which of course didn't work and no chance of working. Uh, however, this is one of the first times, in fact, it's the first time in the war um, properly that the 52nd has been attacked themselves as opposed to them doing the attacking. And actually it's quite rare that they, they, are, um, they are attacked by the Germans. It's normally the other way around. Okay. Well, in which case, should we have a look and see what they were or weren't finding time to read in the Lowlander? Yeah, we probably should. I think that's a very good idea. December the 27th. Canadians take Rosetta. In Italy, the Canadians who recently took Bagnacavallo have pushed on beyond the town and have now occupied Rosetta, with the result that we now hold a 17-mile stretch of the south bank of the Senio River. Can you say, but what's that that big long word, Italian word? Bagna Cavallo. Right, whereabouts in Italy is this? So I've got it in my mind. So this is all part of Operation Chuckle, which is the first Canadian Corps going in to capture Ravenna, and then to go on beyond that to the Senio and Santana rivers up to Massa Lombardo. And if the plan comes off, what they'll have done is outflank the Germans, dug in at Imola, and then threatened their hold on Bologna to the west. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I'm with you now. Right, so that explains more or less where they are. Morale is fairly low because as everyone's remembering the year before, 1944. Yeah. And um, three, four weeks ago, they, they managed to take Ravenna, but things sort of went backwards for a bit because the attack that they planned across the Lamone River failed. Um, right. There's, I tell you what, for the Bailey fans, there's a, there's a cracking triple Bailey bridge across the Lamone, or there was. We need but, to get um, a picture of that for the show notes, don't we? Yes, it's, it's superb. But there are a couple of firsts here. Um, mm-hmm. One is that... 
the Canadian troops use flamethrowers for the first time in Italy. Yeah, I know. And I think that's what kind of flamethrowers? Wasps. Okay, so the universal carrier with the flamethrower attachment. And and, and the other is that as they're going up to try and cross the Fosso Munio to to get to Bagnacavallo, which is what we mentioned here on the page, McCreary is trying to clean up the area between the Munio and the Senio. And there are two attacks that get planned, and they get planned in silence. Right. They get planned in silence. Yeah, they get planned in silence with prearranged artillery support once the, the, the element of surprise is lost. A psychological yeah. warfare unit was supposed to broadcast battle noises simulating an impending attack to distract attention so that right. they could, can go the other way around. Isn't that brilliant? Did it work? Not entirely. <laughs> it wasn't a complete success. Okay. Now, you said McCreary. That is... General McCreary, yeah. For the Canadians. For the Canadians. The Canadians okay. had cleared... Over the last month, they'd cleared about 140, 150 square miles of territory. So they'd made oh, wow. some decent progress. And yeah. if you want some statistics, then they had fired 184,000 rounds, which is the equivalent of a 1,200 three-ton lorry loads. Sappers had opened up more than 200 mil- miles of road and erected 29 bridges, which is about half a mile of bridging. Yeah. Um, and the signals had laid some 2,600 miles of cable, and the dispatch riders had delivered more than 28,000 messages. So exactly there you go. the kind of stats we want. 27th December, 1944. Runestet, four miles from Meuse at one point. The most important piece of news from the great battle still raging in the American First Army front was that Runestet is now increasing his pressure on the central part of his assailant and has now reached a point only four miles from Dinant, an important Belgian town on the river Meuse. Further to the north, Americans have withdrawn from their positions between two of the German thrusts, which had St. Witt as their key position. So what you're saying is this is all the news and views from Muse. Oh, God, I can't believe you just said that. Yes, all the news and views from Muse. Yeah, so I prefer the Dutch version, which is maths, because um, I can say that a lot better. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's a whole page. In fact, the whole of the front page of the 27th of December from Lowlander is about the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, it is obviously the, the largest battle that's going on. Um, it's huge, the area that they're covering. Um it's still relatively, well, it's not early days. It's been going for almost, well, just over 10 days now. Um, but the, the important thing to pick out from that news report, the first part, is the mention of the Belgian town Dinant. Now, mm. Dinant is on the, the, the banks of the River Meuse, and this is where the British Army get involved in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, I mean, in fact, almost immediately on the 16th, Monte or... Field Marshal Montgomery, he activates his troops and he gets into action. He starts cobbling together what troops he can that are near the area mm. and rushes them south with the idea of doing something. Um, it's not very organised, though, is it? Not to begin with, no, but he, he's quite, deci- unlike the popular uh, myth about him, he was very decisive and he, he got the guys moving. While that's going on, what he then does is he cobbles together basically 30 corps um, and he sends south uh, what what divisions he's has what divisions he has got, um, and eventually by around about the twenty fifth, you've got the twenty ninth armored brigade, the British eleventh armored division, you've got fifty uh, first Highland, fifty first fifty third Welsh, mm-hmm. the British sixth airborne division, and thirty third armored brigades and thirty fourth tank brigades. So it's a sizable force. I mean, that's, that's quite a lot, lot of people. Yeah, and then crucially, the twenty ninth armored brigade 
and the 11th Armoured Division, they yeah. were actually they didn't have any tanks at the time because they'd handed them all back in. So they were they were previously on Sherman's, so Sherman tanks, Mark M4s, um, and they were about to pick up the the new Comet tanks with the uh, the, the ultra fast uh, tanks with uh-huh. the 17 pounders. That all got scrapped. They got all their old Shermans back, and they drove south. And they basically took the line of the Meuse um, all uh, for for a few miles actually. And the idea was, and, and actually Montgomery was quite right in his strategy. He decided just to give up the ground to his front and mm-hmm. build his defensive position on the Meuse because he knew the Germans wouldn't be able to cross that. So he kind of let the Germans do what they wanted, which annoyed the Americans, as you can imagine. The Americans thought, well, why aren't you attacking them? Why aren't you getting at them? Uh, <laughs> in typical Montgomery fashion, he dealt with that uh, with his size 10 boot and basically suggested that he knew what he was doing and that actually he was going to win the Battle of the Bulge for them, um, which was obviously not true. Um, But, yeah, the British are involved there. There was about 2,000 British casualties in the Battle of the Bulge, um, which a lot of people don't know about. Now, obviously, that's nothing compared to the Americans. The Americans lost tens of thousands and the Germans lost more. But there are 2,000 casualties, um, and they do eventually go on the attack in the January and they start advancing forward. Crucially, the 6th Airborne Division... um, they launch an attack on the village of Bure, um, and they take on uh, a sizable German force of Tiger tanks, um, and there's quite heavy fighting. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, that's where they are now. But it's interesting they pick up Dinant there, and obviously they won't say that the British are there for operational security, but we know now that's exactly what's going on. That's a lot going on, and the, the lads reading the Lowlander, they'd have been up to speed with most of this, wouldn't they? Whether they knew the British were at that particular point, no, but they would certainly know that there were British units heading south. And, um, yeah, before long, Monty would have let them know anyway because <laughs> he's unable to, to not boast about yeah. things. Well, let's digest that and dive into something else. Yes, I think so. Thursday, 28th December, 1944. Whither now? If yesterday's German reports on the fighting in Belgium are accurate, it seems not improbable that the Führer's new greetings to von Rundstedt will be couched in anything but the customary felicitous language. The Berlin communique mentions a bitter engagement at La Roche, and La Roche lies 20 miles behind the most westerly tip of the German salient and very nearly in its centre. From Allied headquarters, there is as yet neither confirmation nor denial of the report. If true, it would mean the Wehrmacht is facing the most formidable threat since Normandy. What's this all about then? Well, exactly. It it feels like the editors had a day off and somebody with um, corduroy patches and a pipe <laughs> and, and 17 extra typewriter ribbons has just gone wading in there and gone, the communicate meant... It's just hard work, isn't it? I don't really know. It's weathering, yes. It says weathering. Yeah, you're weathering. <laughs> I don't really know what he's got. Is he saying that there's it? They're not. They're not being as nice to each other and their it, communications. <laughs> it's not the same. Per- it's not the same person writing. No, definitely not. Right. It, and, and it's certainly you know in, com- in comparison with the last report, it's yeah. definitely not somebody. Oh, not very punchy, is it? I would suggest, so Thursday the 28th, so I, th- I think if you were in the 5th Battalion of Kings on Scottish Borders on that day, you would probably hard. not be reading this copy. <laughs> <laughs> 20th of December, 1944. The Father of the House. 
At the age of 82, Mr Lloyd George is retiring from politics. At the next election, the voters of Carnarvon Borough will lose the MP, who has represented them for 55 years, and the House of Commons, one of its most colourful personalities. First in 1906 at the Board of Trade, and then from 1908 as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was the stormy petrol of politics, land taxation, coal royalties, and in 1912, national insurance. Almost every year, is his uncompromising reforms provoked a fresh crisis, but with his Welsh wizardry, he carried on the Liberal Party and the country with him. Then in 1914, reforms had to be shelved, and he threw himself into the task of producing munitions. Are we going to talk about the picture? Well, <laughs> it's an astonishing words. picture. Uh, for you, dear reader or dear listener, <laughs> uh, you will have to go on to the show notes and have to see this picture. Well, an interesting story. So um, the, the reason, and I, we mentioned this on the first episode, when I visited the, the National Archives to look at the, the war diary of the 6th Battalion Highland Light Infantry, this is where I first really saw the Lowlander because they kept every single version. That's where we got it from. And I was really wasn't paying attention to it. And then I saw this picture. I went, that little picture looks like David Lloyd George. Lo and behold, it's I read David it. <laughs> and it's an article about David Lloyd George. I went, what the hell is it? Why have they got this in a war diary, which is normally like intelligence reports, the yeah. diary of the day's events and maps. Uh, and this is why we've, we've ended up... Um, boring you to death with the Lowlander for the last few weeks. Um, it's because of David Lloyd George. So I've got a soft spot for Lloyd George because he had a bit of a way with words. Um, there, there are a couple of really great quotes that stick out from him. One is um, he, he had a thing for Hitler, not a big thing for Hitler, but he was kind of misguided to start with. He said, right. Chancellor Adolf Hitler is one of the greatest of the many great men I've ever met. Fuhrer is the proper name for him. He is a born leader, yes, and a statesman. And um, okay. yeah, that kind of sticks in the craw a bit. The, the yep. other great quote is about, um, oh, the Germans have definitely made up their minds never to quarrel with us again. That was uh, post-World <laughs> post War. And then there was a guy called Herbert Samuel, Herbert Louis Samuel. He was right. a leading figure in the Liberal Party for 50 years or so. Yep. And uh, he, he he sort of rubbed... Lloyd George up the wrong way and when they were having a bit of an argument one day Lloyd George turned around and said when they circumcised Herbert Samuel they threw away the wrong bit <laughs> which I think is a bit okay. he's got he's gone slightly up in my estimations now well I mean I, the thing I remember about and this is going to kick off the first world war uh, people um um, is, is his opinions about Haig uh, and, and actually he, he went so far as to say that Haig squandered the men and material yeah, he had which is absolutely untrue in my opinion um, mm -hmm. but I don't want to rile up the First World War people, we don't want to get them joining in because yeah. there's no shutting them up when they get going but... This is London, broadcasting on the Armed Forces Network. The 10 o'clock news read by Reginald Thump. We have received unconfirmed reports from our correspondent at the front that starting in October 2024, there will be a new battlefield tour in Germany and the Netherlands. Our correspondent said that the tour will focus on the 52nd Lowland Division, 
and Peter White, the author of With the Jocks. We are led to believe that further information can be found at an internet website called walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. That's walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. Twenty ninth of December, nineteen forty four. The War Office never forgets, at least not in Argentina. Raymond Cordoba has been arrested for desertion in eighteen ninety. Raymond is now one hundred and one. This reminds me of. Sorry, I haven't got a clue when they have the section that says "Bring me the head of Diego Garcia." <laughs> well, there, there's it's Raymond Cordoba. <laughs> I don't know. I have, okay. I have, I have been through all the archive references. I've been on every database I can think of. The problem is that in Argentina, there's at least one place called Cordoba, right? right? But it's quite a strange little little snippet because when you look at it, it says that he was arrested for desertion in 1890. Yeah. Well, you tell me which war was going on in 1890. Right. Does right. He's not even British, is he? It's it's the Argentinian War Office that's trying to find Ramon Cordoba. I think it must be, but yeah. when we, when we think about wars in eighteen ninety, there were there are only two that I could think of or even mm. look up, and one was um, the the Revolución del Parque, which is the, the the like a civil national uprising thing that took place in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, Buenos Aires Artillery Park, I think it was, where there are two sort of mini factions going at each other. And the other one, now this this is where I, I do query, is, is if it's our war office, then there was a Katie Kateri conflict over Mukala. And of course, as you well know, yeah, you chuckle, um, the Katie Kateri conflict was um, all about the Yemen, okay, that had... had re- Hadramaut region of the Southern Arabian Peninsula. Right. So that was so the, the the Katie part of that was supported by Empire. So I kind of went, well, is it possible that that was our? I don't know. I think he's made this up. It, I, really I mean, do. I mean the the idea is that maybe they're saying you know don't desert because we'll catch you. But it's such an obscure story of desertion. Well, the other thing is that you'd expect a story like that at yeah. least to have one or two references in like the British newspaper archives, but no. Nope. So a guy who's being arrested at 101 years old would have made the news, you would have thought. But I can't yeah. find anything anywhere. So nope. we, are, we are never going to find out who is Raymond Cordoba. Well, to our to our couple of listeners out there (laughs) this is a national appeal if you've heard of raymond cordova please get in touch (laughs) 29th december 1944 lay that paper down paper paper everywhere yes we know it's very tempting to shove it in the nearest stove or if the stove isn't handy well there are other uses the temptation will grow stronger as we overrun germany we shall find documents and records which will not mean much to most of us, old papers only fit for burning. But wait a moment before you destroy them. You may be destroying vital information. That piece may give us the names of Nazi war criminals and the whereabouts of British internees. The economist, the historian, the politician need scraps of papers to find out what has been happening in Germany and to decide what's to become of her in the future. Report any piles of documents you find and leave them undamaged. 
So am I right in thinking that they are actually finding paper mm-hmm. when they're coming back from recce or, or whatever they're doing, and they are, shall we say, using it? Well, Tommy McAtkins mm. <laughs> is coming off patrol. Uh, his bully beef has finally worked its way through the system, oh, and he's going on what we like to call as a shovel recce. Yeah. <laughs> he's got to do his business, and obviously hygiene in the field is very important, so he has to wipe. Uh <laughs> And clearly what's happening is they're finding German papers and they're just using them, because why wouldn't you? But um, but um, that, that said and done, what is interesting here is that there is a kind of nod to the fact that footnotes from history, there is a reason for keeping all this paper, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, that, there is a reason. I mean, actually, there are all sorts of reasons. I mean, Nazi war criminals, they mentioned, of course, that's going to become more important the more the, 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 the yeah, further you yeah, get yeah. to Germany. Um, but also the historians as well. That was a really good point. We actually do need to have this these documents so we can we can mm, record what's happening and all the rest of it. Now, I, I like to think about the organisational factors behind any kind of incident, and I'm classing oh, this God. as an incident. <laughs> and I did some digging, excuse the pun. Now, so the average American in their daily rations, so in their sea rations, yeah. uh, in the ancillaries packet, they would have 22.5 sheets of toilet paper. Uh, very specific compared to the British Army and their twenty-four hour ration pack, they'd only get three sheets of toilet paper. So it's not Tommy McAtkins' fault; it's the procurement <laughs> and the quartermasters of the British Army. Three sheets each. Three sheets to the wind. Um, yeah, and <laughs> is that where it comes from? No, I don't. Well, God, I hope not. Um, but but interestingly, I mean, I, actually, and, and those of you who have ever seen some of the original Second World War rations, and there's some really good YouTube videos about it. Calling it, it's actually not called toilet paper, it's called latrine paper. Uh, you wouldn't want to to do your business with that. It's it's effectively, a, it's like tracing paper. It is, you could use it as tracing paper. It's, fact, like, the, it's like the old Eisel medicinal paper. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, uh, when I joined the army in 1996, mm. the ration pack still had the three sheets <laughs> of, of all stuff. It, not, long, not long after that, it changed and, and they had a packet of handy andies. Um, which was much, much, much nicer. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, uh, stop! I can't do Thirty-first of December, nineteen forty-four. What's wrong with Scottish football? There's been much talk about the Scottish Football Association's coaching proposals. There's certainly plenty to argue over in them. The point of controversy here is this. Has Scottish football declined so far that the game needs to have schemes to revive it? And is the decline, a decline is admitted, due to the war? Anyway, the SFA have taken the matter in hand and endeavours will be made to improve not only the quality of play, but also of refereeing. Courses for players are proposed with three classes, old players, young players and trainers. Very likely a fee will be charged for everyone attending a course and this should provide revenue for the various schemes. But details have got to be finally worked out. Write and tell us what your opinion is. (laughs) What is wrong with Scottish football is the eternal question that every Scotsman asks himself or herself every single year. Really? Yes. And it still isn't. So it's a lot better than it used to be. We had some dark times and we're starting to get a little bit better. Um, but yeah, um, but there's a, <laughs> if you want to get a reaction 
tell a Scottish division to write about what they think about Scottish football. What's wrong with it at this point, then? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a mess, really, to be honest. I mean, um, basically, once at the, at the outbreak of war, the, the, the league system, as we know it, breaks down. So there's not the... Um, there's not the big national leagues. Um, games are sort of grabbed as and when they can. It's a little bit better in 44, 45 than it was at the start of the war, but especially in Scotland where um, the the area and the travelling is is much more different. So, for example, if you play for Air United and you've got to play an away match at Aberdeen, that's a long distance. So very quickly after the war starts, they, they basically clamp down on travel. Mm. So they split the leagues up into north and south, which means Aberdeen is kind of on its own. There's no real big teams around it, so it doesn't really get the challenge. And, of course, people don't want to go and watch them play, you know, the local team from down the road. Some of the teams lose some of their best players to the war, which makes, uh, which that is was, a kind of obvious thing. That was going to be my question because it, the penny has just dropped that, um, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, joking about the fact that, oh, God, we've got to do the football schools every week. Uh-huh. But for the men who are out in the field, this is yep. a, a, a complete point of continuity, isn't it? And it's a connection yep. with home. And, they, and, and I get the whole social cultural affinity with football, even though I, mm. I barely know one end of a, a thingy box from a penalty. Sorry, most, most, most Scottish FA doesn't know one end of the football. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, but the question has just popped into my head, which is who's playing these games? Because surely anybody no. who's fit enough to run from one end of a field to another should be in uniform and carrying a gun, not a football. Well, there's an awful lot of people in the army who are based in Scotland. And not, the that Air Force. not that they carry footballs up. Obviously. No, no. But uh, so, for example, Sir Stanley Matthews is probably the most famous wartime footballer into the 50s and 60s. Um, he is in the RAF and he's posted to Scotland. So he ends up playing in Scotland in the Scottish League. And in fact, um, it's it, it actually saw a little bit of an increase in the quality of football because they had some of the top English players m- moving up north and playing. So there's, it's a little bit of a mix. So there's all sorts of people playing at this point. Some older players, some much younger players, but also there are actually still people. Because, of course, if you think about the, the barracks in and around Scotland, you know, Glasgow, you've got yeah. Mary Hill barracks. So you've got people that can say you've got RAF Presswick. You've got all the naval bases. So you have actually got a lot of young men who can give up a Saturday to play football. And, of course, sport in the Army and the armed forces in general is very, very important. It promotes teamwork, fitness and all the rest of it. But, okay, so for for the ignorant among us, at this point, mid-1940s, did we have a football industry the way we do now, where you have professional footballers paid to be professional footballers all the time? Or was it a part-time thing? I really don't know. The answer is all of the above. Yeah, so so actually the most successful team in this whole period is Glasgow Rangers. Now, I'm not saying which team I support in Glasgow. There's two teams. There's Glasgow Rangers (laughs) or the Celtic. All I'm saying is the best team managed to survive and make money. Uh, which is Glasgow Rangers. And in fact, there's there's some um, there's some argument to this day whether they should count the league titles and cup titles they won during the war because they, it was kind of unfair. A lot of the clubs really went into uh, uh, almost bankrupt. Um, they just didn't have the amount of players, the, the amount of money, the amount of people coming in to watch them. And teams like Rangers, which could still get a full attendance or a, a good attendance, were still making money. Still paying the players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but, but were those full-time players? They were. Some of them would be, yeah. Some of them were oh, not right. as many as pre-war and after the war, but yeah, some of them were. Okay, all right. Well, what's wrong with Scottish football? Everything seems to be the answer, then, doesn't it? 
Well, yeah, and in fact, it's a perennial perennial question, and they're, they're always trying to work out what's the best way to run the football. And the, the SFA uh, still do this thing nowadays. They review it, and they have different things, and they've got pathways for players and pathways for referees. So actually, it's interesting that this is the first time this is really sort of identified. I shall listen far more carefully when you do the schools. No, you won't. And finally this week, Thought for the Day brought to you on the 29th of December, 1944. There will be two to one, but we must beat them or never come home. And yet I intend it fully. A dull superiority creates language. It is a state like this that rouses the spirits and makes us feel as the welfare of all England depends on us alone. You shall not be disappointed. Lord Collingwood, 1805. That was quite a mouthful, wasn't it? God, what's he banging on about? Say what you fucking mean, mate. <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant wouldn't write like that. <laughs> Is it basically saying I'm gonna we're, we're, get, we're gonna die trying? <laughs> uh, kind, kind of. Do you know who Lord Collingwood was? He's a navy bloke, isn't he? <sighs> yes, he was a great chum of the Vice Admiral Lord Viscount Nelson. And oh, 18, okay. yeah, eighteen oh five is gunnery with funnery. It's the year of the Battle of Trafalgar. So this is a letter that he wrote. It's it's in a letter that he wrote. Collingwood yep. wrote in August, eighteen oh five. I mean, he actually took command of the British fleet when Nelson was wounded at Trafalgar. Right. Oh, okay. So, so he he was a mover and groover, but he was writing a letter to his father-in-law, and I'll I'll yep. read you the whole letter because it makes a lot more sense when you hear the whole thing. To J. E. Blackett, Esquire, I have just time to tell you that I am as well as can be, and in great expectation that we shall have a rattling day of it very soon. The Spaniards are completely ready here. They have 4,000 troops embarked. A Cartagena they have many more, and a strong squadron. Whenever they come, Sir Bickerton is to join me with his ships, and then there will be two to one. But we must beat them, or never come home. And yet I intend it fully. A dull superiority creates languor, and it is a state like this that rouses the spirits and makes us feel as if the welfare of all England depends on us alone. You shall not be disappointed. See? Well, now I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's (laughs) just awful language. So he was um, in charge of HMS Collingwood, the first iteration of HMS Collingwood. Right. Um, There have been four iterations. So you know how um, HMS Quebec was the combined operations station up at Inverair? Yes, yeah, yes, actually, yes. Actually, a, sort of a, a, a land establishment. So the fourth iteration of HMS Collingwood is today's largest training establishment for the Royal Navy. There also used to be a Collingwood barracks mm-hmm. at Chatham because I actually stayed there once. So there's another little note. So I had heard of Collingwood before. Did you you never that? heard of Collingwood. <laughs> Navy type, so. That. Should we wrap it up for this week? Yeah, I think that's probably enough and we should probably wrap it up for this year, shouldn't we? Yes, indeed. You're off for Hogmanay? I am off for Hogmanay, and uh, I guess we'll speak to each other in 1945. 1945. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced, and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production.
And now the classified football results for the week commencing 27th December 1944. English Northern League Cup. Aberamon 1, Lovells 2. Barnsley 2, Bradford 1. Bath City 0, Bristol City 2. Birmingham 3, Walsall 1. Blackpool 1, Preston North End 1. Bradford City 6, Leeds 2. Burnley 4, Blackburn 1. Chester 2, Wrexham 5. Chesterfield 0, Derby 1. Crew 2, Port Vale 1. Gateshead 2, Darlington 1. Halifax 4, Huddersfield 2. Hartlepool 6, Middlesbrough 4. Hull City 6, York City 1. Lincoln 0, Grimsby 2. Liverpool 12, Southport 1. Oldham 3, Manchester United 4. Rochdale 1, Accrington 1. Rotherham 3, Doncaster 0. Sheffield United 1, Sheffield Wednesday 0. Stockport 2, Bolton 0. Stoke City 2, Wolverhampton Wanderers 0. Sunderland 4, Newcastle 3. Swansea 1, Cardiff 3. Tranmere 0, Everton 4. West Bromwich Albion 1, Coventry 1. English League South Arsenal 2, Southampton 4. Brentford 6, Luton 0. Charlton 1, Millwall 4. Clapton O's 1, Aldershot 1. Crystal Palace 3, Chelsea 3. Fulham 2, Brighton 3. Portsmouth 0, Tottenham Hotspur 0. Reading 4, Watford 2. West Ham 4, Queen's Park Rangers 2. Scottish Southern League. Erdionians 1, Rangers 3. Celtic 2, Dumbarton 1. Falkirk 3, Clyde 0. Hibs 2, Queen's Park 0. Motherwell 7, Albion 2. Partick 3, Morton 2. St Mirren 7, Hamilton 1. Third Larnick 1, Hearts 2. North East Supplementary Cup Final Dundee 0, Aberdeen 5. Other matches Norwich City 7, Remy 11, 0. What's going on with Norwich City again? They're at it again, aren't they? I don't get that. 